Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And on today's show, we are coming back to our series of conversations with candidates as we look forward to the 2022 election cycle. And one of the things we're noticing as we head towards next year's elections is that down-ballot races are going to be hotly contested in this state. And Democrats in particular are emboldened following their three statewide victories in the 2020 cycle, President Biden's victory and the victory for our two Democratic U.S. senators. We're also beginning to get a sense of how Democrats are going to campaign against the last four years of Republican leadership and leadership by the Kemp administration, including how they've approached issues like COVID-19 and racial justice. And also, as we talked about extensively on recent episodes of this podcast, we are continuing to see Republicans double down on a politics aimed at driving up enthusiasm among their grassroots base through appeals to cultural grievances, to racial grievances, to that kind of politics. State Representative Eric Allen, he is one of those Democrats who is going to be running in a down-ballot race. He's a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, and he's running for lieutenant governor after having served in the legislature representing the Smyrna area. Now, he'll be running for an open seat in that lieutenant governor's race as the incumbent lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, he announced that he is not going to run for re-election next year. Representative Allen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start with you sort of where I start with every candidate. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about why you're running for lieutenant governor next year? Yeah, I, I'm State Representative Eric Allen, and um I'm running for lieutenant governor simply because I want to make sure that every Georgian is represented and that we provide good government in Georgia. And, you know, as the only member of the legislature who's worked as a leader in state government, you know, I really saw and understand firsthand how important it is uh, to make sure that government works for everybody. Uh, and as lieutenant governor, you know, that's one of the constitutional offices that's still part of the legislative process. Uh, others are more bureaucratic in nature. So, you know, in the office of lieutenant governor, I believe it would be one where I can continue to be part of that process of good legislation and making sure we have health care that is accessible and affordable, uh, make sure that we're providing sound leadership and that we're not only uh, focused on being the best state to do business, but also the best state to raise a family. And I know I know we're recording on June 18th, but, uh, you know, yesterday, the Supreme Court uh, just ruled in favor of ACA. I talked about health care. And uh, hopefully the third time is a charm and we won't have to uh, have this battle again. But the lieutenant governor is a very strong and, and powerful voice in the legislature. Uh, and expanding Medicaid and making sure that we recognize that the Affordable Care Act is, is not only the law of the land, but it's just health care. I think it puts me that position or that person in a very strong position to, to advocate and get things done that really impact all Georgians. Let's actually continue there with health care. Um, so you mentioned the, the Affordable Care Act was just upheld, I believe, for the third time by the U.S. Supreme Court. But Georgia has also been the site of Republican resistance to aspects of the Affordable Care Act, particularly the Medicaid expansion that you mentioned. And Democrats have long championed the Medicaid expansion, but even in some places where Democrats have been elected, I'm thinking of North Carolina here, Republican resistance to the Medicaid expansion has actually continued and, and stopped the expansion from being enacted. Uh, North Carolina has been in a multi-year budget battle related to Medicaid expansion. 
Um, so can you tell us your thoughts about how to break the logjam with Medicaid if Democrats win at least partial control of state government in 2022? Well, first of all, there's a couple of arguments. The, the first argument of the fiscal issue is, is really a, a moot point. It would cost Georgia zero dollars for two years to expand Medicaid. As a matter of fact, there's some uh, studies that say it'll bring up to 600 to 700 million dollars back into the coffers um, for those two years to, to expand Medicaid. Uh, so when, when you look at that, you're only left with the reality that there's just an ideological difference. And I, I firmly believe that Republicans have just been fighting the Affordable Care Act so long, they don't know how to embrace it uh, and implement it. There are, are several fully Republican-led states that have expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And they're doing just fine and they're providing health care to as many of their constituents and their residents as possible. Georgia without question should do the same thing. Uh, the other reason it's important is I, I think it, it people don't understand how much this impacts our business community in a positive way uh, to, to have an expansion of Medicaid and to have the Affordable Care Act. I, you know, I tell my story quite a bit when I was, uh, when I first decided to run, it was after having five surgeries in six months, owning a small business. And at the end of that year, my premiums reset and I couldn't afford healthcare. Um, and this was in 2011, it was before the Affordable Care Act was implemented. But if you think about what the Republicans are doing to try to strip away healthcare, if the Supreme Court would have ruled yesterday to just eliminate the Affordable Care Act, thousands of Georgians and hundreds of, of millions of, of, of Americans would have been out of, without healthcare. And so think about the small business owners, the entrepreneurs, the innovators, those that the, the Republicans like to brag about as creating this very great business environment would have found themselves within 24 hours looking at choices of folding their businesses like I had to or going out and getting health care. So when you look at this expansion of Medicaid, you look at fully embracing the Affordable Care Act, it's not only the right thing to do for Georgians, it's also the smartest thing to do with, with, uh, with business sense. And the Republican resistance right now is no more than a pushback on the former president who passed it, more so than sound policy and making sure that they're giving as much coverage to Georgians as they can. And not to mention the rural hospital closures. Um, there, there's tons of reasons, like I said, it, it's, it's almost a contradiction that they will not do it. And I would, um, I would think that once we get through these elections and we get more Democrats in statewide offices, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen fairly quickly. Sticking with that theme in, in part here, um, you know, as we head towards next year's elections, Republicans up and down the statewide ticket are likely to run on the state's quick economic recovery from COVID-19. Governor Kemp made this part of his message in his State of the State earlier this year. And, and when I've seen him in public appearances, he's talked about his efforts to protect lives and livelihoods, pointing to the state's unemployment rate and the way that he's approached restrictions related to, to COVID-19. What is your assessment of how the state has recovered from COVID-19, both from a health and economic perspective? And do you think that some people are being left out of this recovery? Well, absolutely. And that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's just like the, um, the previous recoveries that we've seen in Georgia, where it's not equitable. Um, there are some pockets that are doing extremely well. Um, but if you were to look and, and see if all communities are rising or, or recovering at the same rate, it's just not true. Um, African-American unemployment 
uh, is not rising and coming back as fast as, as other demographics. And those that have been most impacted by this recovery are women. Um, and I, I, I look at the decisions that a lot of families have had to make about who can go back into the workforce and what type of job they can take based on the other, you know, conditions within their family, schools, um, you know, uh, child care, those types of things. Um, when you say that you're with the first to open, there's also some recklessness to that opening because there should have been more balance in how you open. If you just say we're open and you're requiring everybody to go back to work, and then if someone makes the choice of staying home to be with their child or with their elderly parent, who they're still afraid of getting, uh, you know, getting this disease, well, then you go and cut their, you know, additional benefits from unemployment. So you're basically forcing families to go out and make choices that may not be the best choice for that family. So the, the recovery is something I'm sure that they will, will run on and talk about, but just like with affordable, affordable healthcare, for every story that is in favor of the way they open, I think there are gonna be dozens more who can tell stories of how the irresponsible opening and not even the reopening, but not even closing the state down earlier has impacted far more families um, than not. And so that, that's a message I think that uh, Democrats are gonna be happy to, to carry as the responsible party during the pandemic. Uh, and it really shows the difference in leadership. I mean, the, the Republican leadership in this state has failed us in, in many layers, COVID being one, um, you know, our economic recovery, uh, healthcare, education. I mean, it goes on and on. And I think that's a message where I'm, I'm personally willing to have and take forward to the voters. Looking forward here, what long-term lessons do you take away about how the state should be planning for or investing in things that would make for a better response to a future public health crisis or a future crisis at the scale that we saw with COVID-19? First, we have to be honest and understand that this was a crisis and a, and a pandemic. And uh, it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't taken seriously from the beginning. So I doubt it would be taken seriously going forward to make sure that we safeguard ourselves uh, against the next pandemic. Um, and this is where we have to just follow science. Uh, I, would, I would like to see uh, the legislature uh, appropriate more funds toward community health um, and public health so that they can start to put those safeguards in place. Um, I think we should uh, be having hearings uh, immediately uh, on in next session, uh, if not this summer, to talk with health professionals to start hearing and listening about what they would recommend we do to prepare uh, or, or protect ourselves in case the next uh, pandemic comes. Um, so I think there are things that we can do and we must do, but the first of that is getting the majority to understand that what we just had was unprecedented, it was unexpected, but it was not un, un, unforeseen. Now, you've been outspoken on another of these issues that I think sort of falls into this bucket of effective governance. Um, you and other lawmakers have been outspoken about the emissions of a chemical called ethylene oxide from a medical sterilization plant in Smyrna. There are also a couple other plants in other areas of the state that were under scrutiny about these emissions. For listeners who may not have followed this story, because I think this stretches back a couple of years, can you tell them a little bit more about what happened in your district and what this experience has taught you about how the state regulates pollution and whether changes are needed there? Yeah, so, so the ethylene oxide issue, there are six medical sterilizers uh, across the state that use this product. And 
the reason they use ethylene oxide is it is a gas that is so powerful. They can sterilize medical equipment, multi-component medical equipment. So syringes, um, surgical kits, they can leave them in the plastic and in the box even, roll them in on a pallet, put them in a chamber and this gas literally permeates all material, uh, cardboard, plastic, everything to go in and sterilize um, the medical equipment. It was reclassified in 2018 from a hazardous material or chemical to a carcinogen, which is a known cancer-causing uh, cancer agent. When this was announced, the state government actually held it under wraps. Uh, this was right in the middle of the transition. So the deal administration uh, on its way out, nor did the camp administration on its way in, uh, alert individuals who live in these areas uh, about the dangers of ethylene oxide. Um, as a matter of fact, they worked with the companies actively to hide the fact that this was this this NADA report was out, and that this was now cast, uh, uh, categorized as a carcinogen. So when we received that information, a couple of legislators, myself, uh, Senator Jen Jordan, Terry Nullowitz, uh, I won't name them all because quite a few jumped in, um, but started looking at the issue and what we could do, and worked with federal and state agencies to see how we could better regulate. Um, we met a tremendous amount of resistance at all levels. Um, the federal government had no interest, uh, the EPA, in helping to regulate uh, ethylene oxide differently. They are currently in the process of reestablishing rules, but the state has a department, the Environmental Protection Division of Natural Resources, is the state agency designed to monitor and uh, regulate these types of, of facilities. They have been less than aggressive in helping us implement new rules or policies. Uh, I've presented four pieces of legislation. Um, one was passed after being stripped by a Republican, which doesn't doesn't really matter because we got that bill passed. Uh, but there are three other bills out there that I, I think would better regulate and make communities safer, but refuse to even get hurt in committee. Uh, so I, I continue to, I, I want to continue that fight. I'm going to continue to push that legislation this year. All bills are still active. Um, you know, one of them will require each of these facilities to have their own um, air quality plan, which means they would monitor their air quality themselves, report it, um, and be held accountable by not only the EPA, EPD, and the public, uh, but the other one would also require uh, any uh, amount of ethylene oxide to be reported and post it to the EPA, EPD website uh, within 24 hours. And leak is, uh, is a, a huge issue uh, with these facilities. So there's a lot of things we can be doing to make communities safer um, on the environmental front, and, and that's just one of them. You mentioned the approach of the deal and camp administrations to this issue. Um, one thing that I've noticed just as an observer of the legislature is it appears to me that there isn't a lot of focus on using the legislature as an oversight body of other state agencies of, or of other pressing issues in the state. In fact, the the one example that I can remember of like legislative hearings on a particular subject was actually the hearings, the sort of parade of misinformation hearings on election results after 2020. Um, if you were to be elected lieutenant governor, you would preside over the state Senate. Would you have the authority to convene Senate hearings on issues that you think are important? And if so, is that a, a tool that you would like to see used more robustly by the state legislature? 
So, so absolutely. And I'll, I'll add that I, I, I wasn't waiting on a different job to do that. I am the chair of the uh, Cobb delegation. And I worked with the uh, chair of the Fulton delegation. And last summer, um, well, actually two summers ago, we actually held our first joint hearing um, and brought in leaders from the sterilization company. Uh, we brought in leaders from EPD um, and questioned them extensively uh, about the issue and, and what could change. We've had two uh, similar meetings since then. Um, so I, I wasn't waiting to be Lieutenant Governor to lead on this. I think it's something that we, we do now and I've been actively engaged. As Lieutenant Governor, what I would like to see is more action taken. Uh, we can have the committee hearings, but you, you related it to the election um, sh you know, show or, or circus, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, that was all done to give them cover to do something. Um, the hearings are only one step. The next step is getting the legislative body to actually act and to do something to make sure that we're, make, we're doing everything we can to protect our, and, our, our land, our, our air, our soil, and Georgia family. It's, it's, it's important and it has to be done. Once again, we can, we can be the number one state to do business, but we should also have as our target and our goal to be the number one state to raise a family. That means being safe. Let's talk about election laws here. So the, the changes to election laws following the 2020 election where supporters of the losing candidate made sweeping fraud claims, those changes have alarmed a lot of people concerned about the state of our democracy. In your view, can you tell us what the changes to election law in Senate Bill 202, what you believe that those changes do, and what changes you'd like to see to state election law um, if you're elected next year? So just in short, the, the law at, in its face suppresses the vote. Uh, it suppresses voters. It, it's whenever, whenever you argue a bill, and it was argued in both the Senate and the House, that it was in response to too many people voting. That tells you everything you need to know that everything in that bill that Republicans liked was just to force, not, not really force, but to pro prevent the type of turnout that we had in 2020 that elected more Democrats uh, in, in statewide races. Um, you know, the big three that we all think about is the Biden winning, winning Georgia, uh, Senator Warnock and, and um, Senator Ossoff. But there are provisions in that bill, and it's not just about water. Um, you know, in my, my comments on that is, you know, if you've got to pass out food and water in line, then people are in line too long. I'd rather see lines shorter. Um, I would like to see more aggressive uh, requirements for um, counties to have early voting, to really stipulate how much early voting has to be done in a county, not leave it up to county elected officials. It's a very, very disparate, um, you know, operation in each county of how they, they allow uh, early voting. I think it should be required uh, that every county have um, early voting on Sunday. There are things that, that were missed opportunities in that bill to really expand voting rights. If the, if the idea was to make it safer, but expand it, I think that they, they missed the mark because they only made it more difficult and harder for people of color, younger people and older people to access the ballot box. And if, if, if I were lieutenant governor, when that bill had come up, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have come to the floor for a vote. Simply put, the, the lieutenant governor had more options at his disposal than just hiding in his office during debate. Um, there were opportunities to, to, to stop that bill from passing. But, you know, when you have leadership that chooses cowardice over action, you end up with SB 202. And going forward, the only way 
that we're really going to change this through some of these legislative fixes that we can hopefully come together and, and get done in the legislature, uh, but also the courts and, and Congress. Um, you know, I, I'm still hopeful that SR1 in some form can get passed, uh, and I'm fairly confident that the courts will strike down some of the most egregious uh, parts of SB202, if not the whole thing. Another place related to elections where Republicans have a lot of leverage right now is on um, the forthcoming redistricting session. Have events like the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection or these efforts in not just in Georgia, but in other states, too, to pass legislation that makes it more difficult to vote, have those affected your view your view of gerrymandering and redistricting at all? And, and should the state change the way that it should the state change the processes that it uses to draw districts going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely should change. I, I was uh, was happy to sign on to legislation uh, two years ago, the Democracy Act, that would have um, changed the way Georgia does their their state lines. And I mean, it, it's gerrymandering plays hand in hand with with voting um, and with turnout, because if you if you have certain districts that people feel like their vote is is cannibalized, it doesn't matter. Uh, then they're less likely to turn out, especially on some of the local, um, you know, local elections, and and that's really unfortunate because voting is a is a value I hold very very dear, um, and you know, especially in Georgia, it's almost an affront to our sacred right and and those in Georgia from from Martin Luther King to John Lewis to, to even Raphael Warnock uh, to to do everything we can to make it so much harder to vote. Uh, that, I think that's just an affront to all of the hard work and the sacrifice that many people have made, uh, especially people of color um, in this state. And gerrymandering plays a role in that. What, what, what it does is it allows uh, those in power to select their voters and not voters to select their representatives. And when you do that, you basically have a, a, a gov governmental construct and a legislature where the minority of opinion and thought actually have the majority of the power and and that needs to stop and so independent redistricting or some form of of preclearance or regulation around how these maps are drawn uh, definitely needs to be reinstated and did the forthcoming redistricting session where where your district uh, the lines in your district might change significantly did that play any role in your decision to run for lieutenant governor this cycle no, I, I think this is a very solid um, Democratic district. Um, I am um, I'm proud of the work that I've I've done along with so many other volunteers and supporters since 2014 um, to take what was a district held by 20 year incumbent Republican um, and explain to people the importance of their vote. And you know, I, I would tell people all the time I wasn't out converting Republicans to Democrats. I was converting non-voters to voters. And explain to them why it's important, and and I think that people understand that now more so than ever. When they look at SB two hundred two, they're going to see what's happening with the gerrymandering and the, the redrawn of lines. I think it's going to be very easy to keep them energized and coming out to vote. Um, and I expect to do everything I can for whoever's running in this seat to help them uh, and make sure they win this seat and hold it. But I do not think it'll be impacted significantly um, in reapportionment. Moving on from elections here, if you pay attention to, to cable news or Twitter, you might think that the hottest debate in education policy today was the teaching of race in the classroom. But Georgia schools also continue to face longstanding challenges like inadequate funding, and they're likely to have to deal 
with the long-term impacts of COVID-19 on, on students and their families. In your view, what are some of your top priorities for education in the state um, that you would like to see put into place if you were elected lieutenant governor? You know, I, I take that from the lens of, you know, growing up the son of a, a teacher. My, my mother taught 31 years in the same school. And the community we grew up in had a lot of friends that went through there. Um, and, you know, they told me how much my mother influenced their lives. Um, you know, I, in public education, I firmly believe that, that if we're talking about education and protecting education, we've got to be talking about and protecting our teachers. Um, they've been providing state uh, students with so much um, over this last year. Uh, you talked about COVID and uh, their response, you know, on a drop of a dime, they were, you know, converted from classroom teachers to uh, virtual teachers. Uh, and so I want to make sure that we're respecting our teachers. And, and one of the ways you do that is not by cutting billions of dollars from education in the middle of a pandemic. Um, if you recall last year when the pandemic first hit and we came back into session, th there, were, there were three things that I think were, were all connected when it comes to education. There was over a half billion dollar tax cut to businesses. There was the reluctance to spend any of the rainy day fund, but yet there was a billion dollars cut out of education. So what do you think that says about the priorities? Um, that, that says that once again, our priority is to make sure our businesses are taken care of. Not, not to touch our rainy day fund because that's gonna help you know, us prop up our, our bond ratings and everything else, which is important and I understand, but you're gonna take a billion dollars out of education. And so, so once again, that just shows the lack of leadership and vision of being able to say, wait a minute, let's be good to business. Let's be the number one state for business, but let's also be the number one state for families, which means educating our kids. So the priorities that I would have would be to make sure that we are balancing our, our fiscal approach, not to rob our future by continuing to cut money from our education system to pay for our present when the present is more than capable to carry a little bit more weight and help us pay for both. So we, we've just got to have a little bit more um, thoughtfulness in how we approach the budget and where our fiscal priorities are. On the subject of teaching race in the classroom, some Republicans, including Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr, they've sort of participated in this conservative media effort um, to demonize teaching race in the classroom. But over the last year with the upheaval related to COVID-19, with all of the uh, demonstrations for racial, racial justice seen in the response to police shootings, these are issues that students in the classroom, they see happening out in the real world. They're absorbing these things as they're both figuring out who they are and, and how they'll succeed in the world. I mean, how the world values them as, as students and as young people what has been your response to um, this public debate on on how race is taught in the classroom and and how do you think it could be taught in a way that that helps prepare students for the real world and, and prepares them to change it? So I'll answer that in two really quick, quick ways. One, um, politics shouldn't inform curriculum. Uh, politicians should not inform curriculum. Um, we should be teaching history in its fullness. And if we do that, then that solves all the problems. Um, but I, I do not think that we should be injecting, you know, or our, our, 
our politics should be influencing and informing our, our curricula. Right now, that is not a curriculum-based decision. It's not a science-based decision. It's not uh, an educational-based uh, decision. It's, it's purely red meat um, politics infusing itself into our schools. And once again, our teachers deserve so much better than that. They deserve so much better than being put in the middle of a political food fight. Um, so that, that's all I'll say on that, is we should be teaching history in its full form, form in its fullness. And that includes, I mean, you cannot talk about the Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech without also discussing what precipitated and why that was such an important speech. So if we teach in its fullness, then I think everything will be where it needs to be, but it should not be informed by Republican red meat politics. And we, and we, I'll just say one more thing. We experienced the same thing with Common Core years ago. And that just kind of went away once it wasn't a, a hot button issue again. Republicans just, ah, well, we moved on, didn't poll too well. So they moved on to the next thing that polls. And right now that's social issues. And if you look at everything that, that are those red meat political issues for Republicans right now, it's all social, racial issues. And I think we need leadership that goes beyond that and starts to think about everyday Georgians and not just speaking to a very small base in the corner of the state. Yeah, I'm curious about that exact point, actually. You know, this is a theme we've drilled in on Peach Pod recently is this trend among Georgia Republicans embracing this culture war focused, base driven approach to politics in Georgia. It's an approach that not even all Republicans are comfortable with. I mean, one reason that you're running for a seat that's going to be open this time is Lieutenant Governor Duncan is leaving this seat to work on a new vision of the Republican Party that he would like to see. Um, has this approach to politics, though, has it also impacted the way Georgia Republicans have governed at the state capitol? And and what's been your experience of of trying to work across the aisle? Has that been more difficult as Republicans have embraced this kind of politics? Well, it, it, absolutely, all of that. Um, and and I, th I would even say that it's, you know, the lieutenant governor is not leaving office or not seeking re-election to just go work on a new, you know, Republican 2.0. He's leaving because his party would not even elect someone like him in a primary. Um, and I think that's the, the, the problem that when you, and it goes back to the conversation about redrawing districts. When you draw districts that are so heavily right, well, what do you think those elected officials are going to do? In order for them to be reelected, their worst possible outcome is to be outflanked on the right. So they move their policies and their posture. Everything they do, they shift it further and further to the fringe. So what you get is what we have now, which is a lot more extremism um, in elected office. And that has to do with gerrymandering as well, because if, if districts were fairer and candidates were forced to moderate not only in the way they campaign, but in the way they govern, you would not have the situation you have now where there are people who are making the decision not to run for office again, like we just talked about with Lieutenant Governor, because they know that the activist base of a party would not elect them in a primary. And that's that that feeds into how you govern. So if that's the way you got in, then you're going to be less likely to work with someone across the aisle because that's going to be used against you when you run for re-election. And, and there are those that are willing to work, um, but they're in districts that are more representative of fair districts than, than those that aren't. 
I take it that you're not a fan of this turn towards extremism. If if you're elected next year, if more people who are are like you who share your values and your vision for the state, if they're also elected, what do you want to see in that new culture of leadership in the state? And and how is that going to look to Georgians who presumably vote vote you and other folks uh, who want to see this change into office? You know, you speak truth to power. Um, you don't tolerate a circus coming to town in, in your chamber, in your committee rooms um, to spread lies. Um, but there are a lot of things I think would change as far as culture um, with new leadership. And, and that's why it, it truly is about that leadership um, and, and values for that matter, uh, to make sure that we are staying focused on what makes Georgia better. Um, every, every bill, every, every piece of legislation that comes up should be done so with the thought of how does this make every Georgian better? And if we can have that mindset and that type of leadership, I think we'd have a better, a better legislature with better outcomes. So I appreciate you coming on the show today and covering a lot of ground with us. Um, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, I'd just like to um, say thank you for, for having me on. I look forward to uh, getting around the state for everybody listening uh, to, to meet some new friends and see some old ones. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, having your, your support as we go forward in 2022. And if people would like to learn more about your campaign for lieutenant governor, how could they do that? They can reach out uh, to, they can go to the website at www.allenforgeorgia.com. And that's everything spelled out. So A-L-L-E-N-F-O-R, Georgia.com. Um, they can uh, email the campaign at info, I-N-F-O, at allenforgeorgia.com. Uh, or they can call um, the office at uh, 678 8525743. So those are the ways they can reach us. All right. Well, State Representative Eric Allen, he is a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. That general election will be next November. That primary will be next summer. Eric Allen, we thank you for joining the show. All right. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.